What do you make of the great evils of our world? What do you make of the two million children this year that have been sold into sex, the sex trade? What do you make of the 250 and rising number of orphans without a father and mother and a home in the world? By the way, that's about the size of the fourth largest country in the world. What do you do with that? What do you do with the millions of babies, babies this year that are aborted? What do you do with a global pandemic that has claimed three million plus lives? What do you do with the stealth of cancer and heart disease? What do you do about injustice and racism and totalitarian regimes that oppress people? What do you do even in the family of God when one of the greatest apologists of your day it turns out that he was leading a double life, it looks like, of dark promiscuity. And the list inside the family of God could even go on and on and on. You've got to do something with suffering. You've got to do something with injustice. What do you do with it? Do you make sense of it with God or do you make, try to make sense of it without God or is it just some big illusion? Those are really your solutions Perhaps you've asked the same questions. God, why are you seemingly so silent when injustice wins? Where it seems like injustice in our day is winning. And suffering in our day is winning. And then, God, sometimes, why do you act the way that you do? So we have questions both about what God is not doing and what God often does. These are honest questions. They're questions that are as old as the dirt. But I'm here to tell you this morning, even though we don't have all the answers, we can trust God's wisdom in troubled times. You've asked the questions in your life. Maybe you're asking them today. Maybe you've asked them in the past, and maybe you don't have sufficient answers. I want you to meet a man this morning from Judah who lived 2,600 years ago who could completely relate with what you and I walk through today. His name is Habakkuk. We don't know a lot about this prophet. We think we know that his name means to embrace or hug. And let me tell you something. He is going to a need and embrace and a hug from God. He's got all kinds of questions for God. He's a prophet. So if you sell life insurance... He would be high risk for you for a number of different reasons, but he would want life insurance. If you know the job of a prophet, see what the prophet would do is that they were called by God to listen to God, and then their job was to go out and send that message to the people of God and the nations around them. And that was a hard job as a prophet because on one side, if you got the message wrong, there were bad results for you if you were a prophet or if you pretended to be a prophet and you really weren't, really, really bad things happened to you. Not only that, but the people of God, often when they were in sin, they didn't want to hear from the preacher. They didn't want to hear from the person who was calling out their sin and living in sin any more than you would at times. But that was the job of the prophet, and the prophet, prophet often was not received even by the nation of Israel. So the prophet had a hard job. But this particular prophet lived in a day where there was all kinds of evil and wickedness, not just out there, but inside the family of God. You see, he lived in a day where the Assyrians had put the nation of Israel into exile because of their own bad behavior. And so they were living under Assyrian rule, but there was another power that was beginning to rise in Babylon. 
And they were already destroying the Egyptians. And they were coming for the Assyrians. And so here's little Israel living in that. And you know Israel, the ones who didn't want God to be their only king. They wanted their own kings. And if you study the Old Testament at all, you know that the kings of Israel were problematic. Habakkuk's living in a day where there's already been a bunch of problems. The nation is divided between north and south. Israel, the ten tribes, have already been destroyed. And you've got this little couple of tribes in Judah. Okay, so you've got Judah, and they've got some bad problems too. So they've got this king, or they had this king in Habakkuk's day, whose name was Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king. He was the king that took the Bibles out of Israel, the Old Testament scrolls, and he put into the temple the worship of the false Assyrian gods. And yet he has a son named Josiah. What do you know about Josiah? Josiah was a great king. Can you imagine that? Manasseh, awful king, completely perverted the way of God, and then his son rises up as an eight-year-old boy who loves God and wants to follow God. That might be a news for your parenting a little bit, that surely it is right and good in our parenting for us to teach our children God's way, but it's God's work ultimately. So Josiah does that, but he goes to battle. He goes to battle against the Egyptians, and he gets killed. And so his great-grandson takes the throne, Jehoiakim. Go read about Jehoiakim. He makes Manasseh look like nothing. He's an evil king, and this is the time in which Habakkuk is rising. And here's the greater problem. The greater problem is, so goes the ruler of Judah, so goes the nations. I mean, the nation of Israel was sacrificing their own children to the gods of Assyria. These are people who have more knowledge and more understanding. And so that's the time that Habakkuk is living in. And he's saying, God, what's up? What's the problem? The way is perverted. Look at it. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. I know you know exactly where that is in your Bible. Page 785. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to put the words on the screen. It's between Nahum and Zephaniah, if that helps at all. Table of contents may be helpful. If you've got an iPad, today's your lucky day. So, Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to look at what Habakkuk sees. And we're going to look at what he makes of what he sees. He's living in a day where his world is full of evil and wickedness, not just out there, but in the people of God. And he's seeing the nation go up and down and up and down. And so he's got questions for God. Look at it with me. I want to show you chapter 1 today, and we're going to just kind of walk through it together. I want you to see in days of injustice, in days of suffering, there's going to be something here that you do. That you can pick up from on Habakkuk's life that you ought to do in times of trouble. I want to show you what to see also about yourself. About yourself as it relates to a holy God who knows all things. And then last, I want you to see in times of trouble that it's important that we trust in what God is doing even when we can't see it. So Habakkuk chapter 1, 785 in the Bible on your chair there. And I'm just going to read the first four verses The oracle, or the burden, literally the burden, the weight that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he gets a word from God, but before he does, he's got some questions. He's got some complaints to God about what I just shared with you about the backdrop of what he's living in. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence or injustice and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed. God's word is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Here's the first thing you've got to do in times of trouble. The first thing you've got to do in times of trouble, when injustice seemingly goes unchecked, you've got to bring your burdens to God. You've got to bring your burdens to God. See, he sees this oracle. What's Habakkuk's perception about God? This is his perception. His perception about God and all the mess that he's living in and all the injustice that he's living in is that God is just idle. God is indifferent. God is not doing something, so therefore he doesn't care. This is the perception, observation, and how he interprets the situation that God is silent. And then you come to verse 4, and he's really speaking about the people of God. He's not speaking about just the Assyrians. He's talking about this, the people of God, so the law is paralyzed. God's word doesn't go out. The people have removed it. Justice never goes forth, so the word is paralyzed. God's ways don't win the day. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice is perverted. Do you ever feel like that when you look out? I think this is what Habakkuk saw when he picked up the Jerusalem Gazette in the morning. All he saw was injustice. And so like you and like me, we can relate. We cry out, where is justice? Where are you, God? It seems as though you're silent. C.S. Lewis said, this is the deafening silence of God. So, the application. The application for us is, rather than just yelling about injustice, and ranting about injustice, and talking to people about injustice, and arguing with people about injustice, there is a place in the public square for us to vote, there is a place for us to engage. In the world that we live in, God calls us to that. But at the end of the day, half the battle in dealing with what you don't see happening is taking your burdens to God. That's the first step, that you take those burdens, those things that you don't see, to God. And trust those things to God. Let me ask you a question. How long do you tend to carry your own burdens by yourself? How long do you intend to carry those burdens where you've got questions in your head about why God isn't acting or what God is doing that you just keep in your own head and you stew on them and you let those seep down into your heart and to your life? And how do you take those burdens and expect others to fully carry those burdens for you like other human beings who can't fully fix your problems? You see, God is the only one who can ultimately fix the problems that we have. Do you bring your burdens to Him? Let me think about this as it relates to your kids. If you have children, it is a natural and right thing for you to want to protect them, for you to want to care for them, for you to shield them from some things. But if you have kids that are older than about four or five, what you're going to realize as a parent is there's some things that you can't shield them from. And the older they get, the more conversations go like this. Hey, buddy, I know you're really upset. I know this is really wrong, this thing that happened to you. And I am here for you. 
and I love you, and I will walk with you in this, but I can't change the bitterness that you have in your heart. You've got to go to God and give this burden to God. That's a humbling thing for a parent, right? A parent who wants to care for your kid, a parent who wants to love your kid and walk your kid and protect your kid and solve all their problems. This is the tendency. But there comes a point, even with our children, where we have to let that go and say, God can help you. I can't, and I shouldn't help you with this to that degree. I can't be that source. God can help you with your hurt and your pain in ways that I can't. You know the the daddy-daughter dance scene these days? I think they're a Christian music. They're just built for the daddy-daughter Christian scene now. And so my favorite, there's a lot of songs that are being produced for daddies and daughters right now for the daddy-daughter dance. And Shane and Shane probably has the best one, I think. I don't know if you've ever heard the Shane. I have a daughter, so I I think about these things. This Shane and Shane song is called The One You Need. And, And the lyrics go like this. I wish I could be your everything. I wish I could be the one to give you all that you need. But Jesus is the only one who can give you all that you need. He's the one that you need. And the same is true of us as God's children. Not just for our own children, but for us as God's children. That it's right and good in the Christian community to lean on others, to let other people bear your burdens, to let your spouse bear your burdens. But ultimately, ultimately we have to take our burdens to God. So when you have questions for God about injustice, when you have questions about the suffering you're going through, encourage you, the Christian community is here, but ultimately, these are questions that you have to take before the throne. You see, Habakkuk brings his burdens and his weights to God directly, and he's pretty confident. Do you notice that? He's pretty confident. How long? Why? He's got honest questions. Listen. It's okay to bring your questions to God. And you may even have the wrong perception. But it's okay to bring your questions to God. And so how's God going to respond? So, so, so Habakkuk's first complaint. Let's just summarize it. His first complaint is, God, you're not showing up. You're not doing anything. So God's going to respond in verse 5. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think God, the God of heaven, is going to scold him? For bringing his questions to him. How dare you question me? Do you think that's what's going to happen? Do you think God is even going to deny that there is injustice? Look at verse 5. Let me read 5 through 11. Look. This is God. Okay? Look among the nations. See and wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk. For I'm doing a work in your days that if I, if I told you, you wouldn't even believe me. And then he tells him. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Look at this imagery, this poetic imagery. It's meant to make you feel some things. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Make a note there. Underline the word eagle. For they all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, those 
whose might is their own God. And so what God is saying is, hey Habakkuk, look at the first four verses. Remember what Habakkuk says? Look, you're not doing anything. I don't see anything. And God says, look Habakkuk, see what I'm doing I'm going to deal with the wickedness inside of, your, of the people of God and I'm going to use these Babylonians. Aren't they so strong? Aren't you impressed at how strong they are? Aren't you impressed at how much judgment I'm going to bring upon the people of God because of them? I'm going to deal with it. You need to know Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's going, hey, I'm in this and I'm probably not that excited about it because I'm going to have to go through this judgment too. See, we've got to be careful... <laughs> When we ask questions, we get answers that we have more questions about. And so your second idea in verse 5 through 11 is this. See, we need, when injustice seems to go unchecked, we need to bring our burdens to God, yet we need to recognize something really important. We need to recognize our limited capacity to see all of God's purposeful plans. See, God has all wise plans But our view and our scope is limited because we're finite creatures and yet God is working. God was working when Habakkuk was asking. He was working. He says, look, be amazed. I don't know that Habakkuk is amazed. We're we're going to get there in a minute. See, sometimes we ask questions thinking we want the answer, but we get an answer that we don't expect and then we have more questions. Here's what's interesting about this. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy 28, it's a reference that we often make when we're talking about the people of God in the Old Testament and blessings and cursing. See, there's this thing in the Old Testament law where if they obeyed the law and they followed God and they loved God, then there would be blessing. There would be abundant blessing. And yet, if they didn't follow God, there would be cursings. And God would judge them. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, and if you look at verse 49... Deuteronomy 28, 49. I don't, I don't think I have it up there. The Lord says this, and he's talking about if they disobey, here's what's going to happen. The Lord, Yahweh, will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. You see that? A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old. Or show mercy to the young, which is exactly the way the Babylonians, what they did. And it shall eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of the ground, until they are, you are destroyed. It will also not leave you grain. And they go on and on and on. See, this is prophetic of what God said would happen to the nation Israel through the wicked Babylonians. So do we recognize our limited to pass capacity to see God's purposeful plans? But here's the thing. we got a problem, don't we? And Habakkuk's going to have a problem. Like, how can God do that? Isaiah 55, I think we have it here. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, tells us a little bit about our God. Isaiah 55, if you want to turn there. Verse 8 and 9. This is what God says when he's talking about his compassion even to his people. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, I wish God would ask me more (laughs) about what he's doing and what he's up to in my own life and why he works the way he does and does certain things in my life that I have questions that I'm perplexed about, but he often doesn't do that because his ways are better than my ways. You ever been there? Are you really upset about something that happens in your life and you go, man, I got a way better way in which I think this could happen. That God could have done it in this way and a couple years later you look back and go, okay. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Okay, I, I get it now. There were some things within me that needed some work and you had to literally rip me out of that to be in this. You see, our ways are not always his ways. And this is our biggest problem. Do you, do you know what the top grossing toy company in the world is? You step on them at home if you have children. Where everything is not awesome and everything is not cool. Legos. Top grossing toy company on the planet. Past year is like $4 billion. They're worth $27 billion at this point. They make interlocking plastic toys. Where's Wheeler? There he is. This man loves Legos. And they sell creativity, basically, right? I mean, you can interlock these different plastic interlocking toys in millions of different ways, unless you're that guy, unless you're the engineer, and there's one way to do it, and it sits up on your mantle, and that's it. But most of my kids, they put it together, and then what do they do? They tear it apart, and they put something else together. And nowadays, you all really kind of own part stock in the company because you pay like hundreds of dollars to get these marketable Star Wars Legos and different things. But do you know the story of Lego? Do you know its background? I mean, it's, it's an incredibly wealthy company. But let me tell you the background. It's a Danish company that started officially like in the 30s. But they made wooden toys. They made plastic toys. Really, plastics until after the war. In the second war, I think. They made wooden toys in 1960. Their factory burned to the ground. And if you own Lego at that point and you're looking at your burnt down factory, you're probably going, from my limited view, it looks like this thing is over. But they had a little R&D section in the back that had plastics that they were exploring. How would we do this with plastics? And the rest is history. But from their vantage point at that point in 1960, when the company looked like it was burned down, they couldn't see what God was going to do or what would happen in their future. There's a lot of things in life that are that way. Where you look at a certain point, a certain point in time and you go, I don't know how, you're gonna, how I can explain this. I don't know how I can get out of where I'm at in the trouble and the suffering and the justice of the world. And yet God is working. And God is at work like he was in the day of Habakkuk. There's a great theologian. His name is Garth Brooks. And you know where I'm going with this, probably. If you know, you know. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. 
I think about Habakkuk and what he's screaming about and worrying about. I have the benefit of reading it and going, oh, I know what happens next. He didn't. And that's often the way life is. But his ways are not, not often our ways. We see through a mirror very dimly. The problem is, is that we think we see really clearly. I think I see really clearly the best route and the wisest route. And yet God often shows me something different. Our biggest problem is our own confidence in what we see, in our own plan. And then we blame God for wrecking our plans, right? Let me ask you a question. Is there a humility under God in your reasoning and the musings that you have about the whys or why nots of life? Do you trust God's wisdom over your own wisdom or your emotional responses? Over the wisdom of even the smartest people on the planet that have thoughts about these things. Do you trust in God's wisdom knowing that you can't see all of it and all that's happening? See, this becomes a bigger problem for us when we get into conversations about justice. When we get into conversations about God creating the world out of nothing or miracles or heaven and hell or the way We come to God solely through Christ or sexuality and the right way to relate to one another or absolutes. See, if we trust in our own wisdom about those things or about the things that we don't fully understand from our limited scope and our limited capacity, we get into trouble. See, we got to give up the ghost a little bit, don't we? The good news is, is if you can trust in God's wisdom and wait on Him, He's got you. He will care for you where you're at. He knows the things that you have questions about. Do you see how gentle, effectively, God is with Habakkuk? He doesn't deny that there's injustice going on. You notice that? He doesn't scream at him. He doesn't yell at him. But he does tell him to look because his perception is wrong. You're not doing anything. Yeah, I am. And it's going to bring judgment, which is what you want, right? He's patient with him. But maybe to that you say, but isn't Babylon really bad? Aren't they some bad people? Yeah. And isn't Judah, aren't they still, even though they're, they're kind of messed up, even, aren't they still the people of God? So can God do that? Look at the next few verses. Here's what Habakkuk's take is on God's answer. He's still got some questions. He's got more questions. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O God? My God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are purer eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? So he has a different problem now. And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous, underline that, than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things who have no ruler. He brings all of them up to the hook. He drags them out of the net. This is him talking about Babylon and what they will do. He gathers them in the dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Look at 2.1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer back concerning my complaint. In Habakkuk's mind, his defense rests. So here's your third idea. You've got to believe that our sovereign and, God and wise God can and does use all things to draw people to repentance, to draw people to himself. That's why God is judging his nation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can use all things, even wickedness, to draw us back to himself? So first, he has a problem with what? Here, God, you're not judging your own people, and they are acting wickedly. Now God answers and says to him, I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to use the wicked Babylonians to do it. And now God says, well, you're, our people are more righteous than they. So what is his view of Judah's righteousness? Judah's righteousness, even though they're bad, they're not quite as bad as the Babylonians. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with a scaled view of righteousness. There's lots of problems with that because unrighteousness is unrighteousness to God. But the second problem is this. The nation Israel has more knowledge and ought to be more accountable to God because of their knowledge that they have of God. The Babylonians have no clue. The Assyrians have no clue. Remember how God sent Jonah to preach to them and he didn't want to preach to the Assyrians because these were the present day terrorists and he didn't want them to know God. This is what he's saying about Babylon. It's like they're more unrighteous than us. How can you use an unrighteous vessel to judge righteousness? Now he's looking at his own nation going, hey, we're more righteous than they. It's a bad view of righteousness. See, judgment starts, though, in the household of God. That's what God's word says. And they have more knowledge, so they are accountable. Listen, God can use all kinds of instruments, all kinds of instruments to bring and call his people Back to himself. Somebody said it this way. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? That he can use our crooked lives to bring him glory. You think about, again, the example of a parent and a child. If you have children, do you discipline them? What are the different instruments that you use to discipline your children? There are a variety of things, aren't there? If you have a small child, you might give them a timeout. Kids, you get any of that? A little timeout? You could withhold things. You could hold, withhold media. That's a good one. You could spank them. Who spares the rod, spares the child. Is any of that pleasant for that child? No. But you love that child enough that you don't want them to be a crazy human being when they grow up. And bad parenting means I love them enough. I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm not going to discipline them in any way. They're going to be terrible humans, y'all. All right? God loves those whom he disciplines. And let's just say they grow up a little bit and they get a little older. And they're teenagers. And your teenagers, let's say you, let's say you get a call from the school one day. And this is not my family. I know I have a teenager. Guys, it's not you. All right? Let's say you have a teenager. Let's say they like to run their mouth a little bit. All right. And you get a call from the school one day. 
Mr. Thornton, can you come up here? We got a problem. Kid got in a fight. And you go up there, and you know this big old kid sitting there. He's not beaten. He he's not black and blue, your son. He's got a little shiner on his, on his mouth. Got a black eye. And then you hear the story. And the story goes, ran your mouth. Bully, big bully, did something about it. Big bully's in trouble, okay? He gets in trouble. And then you're on the way home. And what are you saying as a parent to your kid? You're saying, I'm sorry, right? I hope, a little bit. I'm sorry that you've got a, your mouth's hurt. I'm sorry that you've got a shiner on your eye. But you kind of kind of had it coming to you, didn't you? It's not a bad thing to say. It's not a bad thing to think. And you know what? When, when your kid goes to school the next day, or maybe from that day forward, maybe that lesson is learned more from that experience of the bully than it is from mom and dad just to continue talking, to continue saying, be careful with your mouth. Don't talk to people that way. It's going to get you in trouble and get you Right? And so God often uses different kinds of means. He often uses different kinds of means to judge His people, to bring judgment. Why? To bring them back to Him. To bring them back to Him. Maybe you're saying this morning, I don't know, Pastor. Like, I, I get the examples. I understand the examples. But how can God use evil? I mean, God is not evil, right? He, he doesn't tempt people into evil. I'm with you. But I would say this. You can't open the Bible and not see God using evil and wickedness for his own purposes, as an instrument for his own purposes to bring his people back. You see this in the garden with Adam and Eve. You think Adam and Eve understand the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God without falling? You got a serpent there. Think about Joseph. You think about Joseph's life and the hell that Joseph went through as a righteous man. And in the end, the purpose of his awful, evil brothers who sold him into slavery left him for dead was to get him to a place in the nation of Egypt so that when the famine came, which it was coming, and it was prophesied way back in Genesis that it was going to come, that his family would be saved. God used evil as an instrument for his own glory, as an instrument to even bring those brothers back. He did. Does he use it all the way through the Old Testament with his, <clears throat> the nation Israel? With the Canaanites, with the Egyptians, with the Assyrians, now with the Babylonians. This is what God does. He, you ever play pool? Ever anybody play pool here? Like the, you've got to have some skill to play pool, but you also have to have some strategy to go, after this shot, I'm trying to set it up for that shot, and then that shot, and then that shot. See, see God is the master pool player. He knows all the moves. If you like chess, you can go there with chess. You can go there with whatever. This is the way God works. And if you still have an issue, you've got to look at the cross. Because the greatest injustice that could ever be was on a cross 2,000 years ago where men put the Son of God, Son of Man on a cross, the perfect man, the perfect God on a cross and killed Him on a cross. A criminal's death that you and I deserve, he took. Talk about injustice. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't a criminal. He took your place and mine. 
for the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of our, my sins. So a sovereign God at the cross used the injustice of that to draw people to Himself. And so God is a sovereign, wise God and He can use all things to draw people to Himself. Ephesians 1.11 says it this way, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. But one of the things I love about Habakkuk here, even though he's got a lot of questions, even though his perspective is wrong, even though he's come, he continues to come to God and stand on his rampart effectively and say, all right, defense rest, you don't have an answer. He's still trusting in God. He still believes in God. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One. So he's still holding on. Do you see that? He's still trusting in God, even though he doesn't have the answers. He doesn't have the full answers. He falls back on what he knows about God. And this is what we have to do when we have unanswered question. Listen, I'll never trade what I don't know for what I do know. You never trade what I don't know than what I do know. I know my God is from everlasting. I know I can wait upon Him. So in troubled times, we need to believe and trust that God is sovereign and wise and He can even use wickedness, all things, to draw people back to Himself as He did you, as He did here. And we need to recognize the limited scope of what we see and humble ourselves before God to go, I don't really see it all. That's a hard thing to do and we need to cast our cares upon Him. I'm going to close with this. Do you know the story of Lazarus, right? John 11. Jesus is out of town. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. He's about to die, and he does die, and then Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. Remember that story? There's some great truths in that story as it relates to the human condition of suffering and questions that are not answered. And when you think about it from the perspective specifically of Martha, some things come out. Remember Martha? See, Martha and Mary knew Jesus. They were friends. They were close friends. And so when Lazarus got sick, what did they do? They sent for Jesus. They sent for Jesus, and Jesus said, I mean, this is a friend of Jesus. Jesus is the guy who has healed all kinds of people, people he doesn't know even. There's a shocking response from Jesus. After he found out about his good friend Lazarus, after that, he said, hey, I'm going to stay in the same place for two more days. I'm not coming yet. The disciples knew what he was going to do, who were with Jesus. But what happens when he shows up? When he shows up, Lazarus is already dead. And the, and the ladies make sure he knows his four days, all right? Martha has a limited perspective. But Martha says what? The same thing you and I would say. If you would have been here, my brother would not be dead. You could have healed him if you would have gotten here quicker. Why did you delay? That's pretty shocking. Those are things. So God, why are you silent? Why are you absent? You could have been here. You could have done something about this. See, she doesn't know. She has a limited perspective of what Jesus is going to do. 
Because what does Jesus ultimately do? He raises Lazarus up. But she doesn't know that. She is in this deep place of grief. And the most shocking thing that happens in John chapter 11 to me, as I read it, with a woman who is grieving over the loss of her brother and over the loss of answers to her question of why God? Why Jesus? You know what Jesus turns to her and says? And he's not talking to Lazarus. He's talking to her. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you, Martha, believe in me? So you know what Jesus is saying to her, y'all? About what she didn't know, about what the limited perspective she was, didn't have. See, Jesus was saying to her, the questions you have are not the most important thing right now. Lazarus being raised is not the most important thing right now. I am. What you need the most is not answers. What you need the most is not that thing that's undone. What you need the most is me. I am the resurrection and the life. And C3, when you perceive seeming injustice in our day, and you see God seemingly unacting, remember that you have a limited view. And remember the biggest thing you need is not necessarily answers and not necessarily solution. The biggest thing that you need is Him. Always. He's the one that you need. So your takeaway this morning is this. In the face of trouble, in the face of trouble, Jesus is what you need the most. In the face of trouble, wait for Him. Wait for Him. He is just. He is sovereign. He is wise. And He is good. He knows where you're at. Wait for Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. This morning, before I pray, I asked them to come up and play a song. I actually asked them, hey, can you play this song this week? As I was studying this week and thinking about this text. It made me think about a song that has been deeply impactful in my life in the last four or five years when trouble has come. And I don't understand why God is allowing certain things to happen or not happen. And so I want us to sing this song Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. If you, can, if you haven't heard it and you just want to listen to it, and let it sink in, let God do His work, because this is what we need. We need Him. We need to wait on Him.